0: Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Chinchilla's Quick with me, Chris Chinchilla. It's been a little while since a links roundup show, and that's all I am going to go into today because I actually have quite a lot of links I want to share with you, quite a lot of discussion points to discuss, and I'll get back to some interview shows in the next episodes. So let's jump right in, and then I'll give you a little update from me at the end of that. First covered in multiple places, not really referencing anybody in particular, but I've got a few links here I looked at on Cointelegraph and then actually two from MIT Technology Review, Ethereum. The Ethereum merge has finally, finally switched to proof of stake instead of proof of work. Now I bring this up not only because it's a big technical change to a, a fairly major technical project, but also because it was something I was loosely involved with. Not directly with the merge um, work itself, but I was working at the Ethereum Foundation when that work was going on, and it was talked about a lot, and it reminded me a little bit of when I was working in Drupal, and they were talking about for a long time the Drupal 8 switch, and it took a long time, but it happened eventually, and to me, this Ethereum merge and, and switch of a proof system. It's kind of like that. It took a long, long time. A lot of people said it would never happen, and then it finally did. And it's going to have, hopefully, a lot of positives and uh, potentially a, a lot of uh, impact on on uh, the future of Ethereum, if it's not too late, I think is, is probably the argument a lot of people would say. So it will, it will make things a lot faster. It will reduce environmental impact. Uh, and reduce gas fees, for example. And the Ethereum Foundation has never really had any actual interest in having those things high. So this will encourage users uh, of smart contracts and, and, and contracts on the Ethereum blockchain to do more, hopefully. And we will avoid more cases like the, the example here mentioned in MIT Technology Review. It generally averages 15 transactions per second, which is not very much. Um, and when CryptoKid is launched in 2017, it basically broke the network effectively. So now it will use 99% less energy, allow the network to scale better and potentially help it reach 100,000 transactions per second. I'm interested to know um, why it says help it reach. Is that just because there aren't enough transactions to reach that or it needs more tweaks first? But anyway, and here's a quote from uh, Vitalik Buterin, who has said it was always six months away, and it actually took around six years, which is almost, I think, half of its uh, half of its lifespan, if not more than half of its lifespan, which is quite amazing in itself. So we're yet to see how this will work. We yet to see how this new incentive mechanism will work in reality. It kind of has has allowances in place to let old and new people with a vested interest in more ways than one in Ethereum be an active member, and it penalizes those who aren't active members and just are speculating. So you can no longer um, have an influence on the network. So instead of miners, you now have validators. And to become a validator, you lock up or stake your tokens in the contract, and uh, the contract then holds that currency. So it's a little different, um, and it requires quite a lot, actually. 32 Ether, currently around $100,000. This to say, does mean that there'll be the kind of modern investor who is in it for the money, who will be able to be involved, but also the older hacker-type um, people, I can't think of a better word, who have been in it for a long time and have that kind of ETH. I think I had like five at one point, which was a lot, but not so much when I got it. If you don't have that kind of money, you can also join staking services to like a, like a, almost like cooperative staking, which is kind of cool. And then the more you stake, the greater your chance of winning the lottery. And then you get new ETH if yours is one. So it's a little interesting. I, I wonder how people will win or lose with this, but it encourages people to play by the rules a lot more. Um, and there's a lot of positives here. I think the main thing for me is what I said when I begun this, this piece is, is it too little too late? Is it enough? Is it enough to rescue Ethereum and kind of blockchain technologies from where it is And has anyone who turned away because of what it was then already moved on? And that is going to be something that remains to be seen, I guess. Next, an article from uh, ZDNet from old favourite Stephen Vaughan Nichols. Firstly, when I saw this, I thought it was blockchain related. ChainGuard releases Wolfie, a Linux undistribution. Uh, but it's not. <laughs> Nothing to do with it, actually. So what it is, is when they say an undistribution, it's based purely on containers, or it's interesting because there's a difference between designed for and designed to run on. There's a, there's a slight difference. There's quite a few of them. Uh, CBL Mariner from Microsoft, Alpine Linux, FlatCar, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, CoreOS, OS, and ChainGuard. But I think theirs is expressly aimed at cloud native uses because ChainGuard is a cloud native security company. So I assume ChainGuard is a nod to um, supply chain security, which is a topic I've actually covered a little bit. So maybe, maybe that's a company I should line up for interview, adding to my list right now as I record this. Um, They announced this at the Open Source Summit in, in Dublin, which I was hoping to go to, but I couldn't quite fit into my travel plans. And um, I'm hoping to actually cover some of uh, some topics from that soon, a bit late as always. Um, and they hired a few people from Alpine. Alpine was not actually designed for containers. It was designed more for low compute devices. So they have sort of started from scratch with something that is more designed for it. And then the distroless images can be rebuilt daily from upstream sources, containers which are signed by another third party called Sigstore, Sig which is a new standard um, for verifying code in an S-bomb, which I covered on the show a few months ago. All in all, securing up that supply chain of dependencies, especially in containers, which is a topic I have revisited many, many times. And maybe this is something I look forward to actually giving a try on one of my learning live streams or in a hands-on video. And you can actually find it on GitHub. It's called Distroless. Um, And it's already moved from the link in the Zednita article. So make sure you follow that and figure out where it's moved to. Next, my recurring uh, mentions from the Eclectic Light Company. Should you upgrade to Ventura early then? I think I mentioned in a previous episode of why you might want to upgrade to Ventura, for me anyway, some of these improvements to encoding in OBS and some changes coming in the virtualization layers, which I will be covering in a video and blog post very soon, which is where I kind of entered into the Eclectic Light Company's um, plethora of content. Um, but he also mentions here Stage Manager. I actually forgot that was coming to Mac OS, I thought that was just coming to iPad OS. Passkeys, which I've heard a lot of people talking about from the iOS releases, the revamp system settings, maybe, maybe not. And rapid security responses, bringing small, urgent security fixes between big updates, sort of taking a leaf out of Google's book with Android. There, um, he also mentions in his post what isn't changing. Um, but I don't know if I'm really game for <laughs> for upgrading my production machines yet. There's too many applications I rely on too much that so I'm not completely sure if. Um, I want to take that risk yet. I mean, just wait. It's going to be like a month or so until I can do it properly. And again, if you want to take it for a whirl and test all that first, look for my roundup based on Eclectic Light Company's um, own roundup of virtualization options coming very, very soon. I actually discovered way more for macOS than I expected, which was kind of interesting, kind of cool. Following on nicely, and I await eagerly the next part. This is from Ars Technica, from Jeremy Reimer. A History of Arm, Part 1, Building the First Chip. And this only came out about oh, less than a week ago, so I hope the, um, the next one will come soon. Because what a lot of people don't realize, which always fascinated me, was that ARM came out of a 1980s British computer company when they needed to design their own CPU for a new model. And uh, they were involved in a, in a battle between um, Sinclair Spectrum for kind of the heart and minds of amateur home computer users in those times to make this uh, BBC Micro. Uh, and Acorn won it, but then it it sort of flattened eventually, and, and Spectrum ended up selling far more in the end. I think I've covered uh, Sinclair on here at some point in the past. Um, and then when they moved on to their next machine, they needed to have a processor that that worked in the way they wanted, and none of the available mainstream options, pre-conceived options, were really what they wanted. So they created their own processor. And ARM does indeed stand for ACORN Risk Machine. And this is where things get interesting because I remember the whole discussion around risk reduced instruction set computing versus CISC complex instruction set computing. Well, it's hard to say. Um, in the 80s and 90s when um, Apple uh, had the uh, PowerPC CPUs. And they were technically better, but never really won that argument inside mainstream computing anyway. So to see them now come back, even though they're kind of thought about in a, in a different way now, this risk-cisk thing is not completely um, completely as clear-cut anymore. It's fascinating to see this company that nearly failed, that used to make computers in a very particular moment in time, is now designing chips for most uh, devices, actually, aside from Intel based and, and some others as well. So if that interests you and that history interests you and it always interests me, then go along and read that article because it's quite an interesting read. And hopefully by time of me publishing this, the part two will be out. Next, this is from The Verge, their new look by James Vincent. This has been discussed quite a lot from various angles, but this is the one I am going to to mention. Getty Images bans AI-generated content over fears of legal challenges. This is not just coming up with images, not just coming up with Getty Images, but this Whole aspect of if you as a human use an artificial intelligence to generate creative content or any sort of content, who owns it? Who might claim they own it in the future? And it's best to avoid that by just not allowing it. What I wonder is how they will be able to tell, um, especially because you could just get rid of a lot of the metadata and um, export it and clear it all out. So how will they even be able to know? which is why I'm mostly interested, is how will you stop it? But it's an interesting uh, discussion that's starting to come up. This And again, these unintended consequences or the things you don't expect of something where um, people complain that uh, the AI is coming to take your jobs, but actually maybe it doesn't because all the places where you can make money out of content don't allow you to put it there anyway. thus sort of inadvertently solving the problems. But... This is a much bigger discussion that we will come to over time, of course. On the subject of images, this is something from web designer Depot. I'm not quite sure why I decided to try and pronounce that in a weird way by Ben Moss. So Adobe acquired Figma. Um, And many people saw this in a negative light. I don't know. I think Adobe gets a bad rap. They were a company that Yeah, we're a little bit um, staid and stale for some time, but actually I've been a user of their products for some time and I really think recently they have um, done a pretty good job of of adding in a lot of new features. And Figma is something that I've never really got around to using very much because I couldn't really warrant the extra cost. And if it's going to be part of Creative Cloud, that would be great. Will they roll it into their own tool? I think it's XD. Um, are they just acquiring the staff? Are they just trying to acquire users and roll them into their whole tool chain? Is yet to be seen, but I don't think it's necessarily bad. Adobe has acquired some quite prominent companies over the past 10 years, um, like the font foundry uh, as well, I can't remember which one, um, and it's sort of worked out okay I mean, it largely worked out well for customers of adobe and adobe i think are kind of revitalized right now like like apple are and microsoft are so it doesn't necessarily have to be bad even though a lot of designers think it is this kind of old world versus new world feeling i guess yet again i think the third time of me saying remains to be seen talking about the old world this is something from the Smithsonian Magazine with no particular author credited here. Some of the images are, was King Arthur a real person? <laughs> and this focuses a lot on an area around a place called Tintagel, which I have actually been to. They talk about this castle on the rocks, it's like an outcrop just off the coast of the southwestern UK. And I've actually been there. And it is quite fascinating and windswept to look at and quite imposing and how a lot of people have sort of pieced together these bits of tentative evidence to to say he was he wasn't he was kind of always just a vehicle of what people needed at the time that kind of thing and i guess this is especially being looked at right now because the uk is going through something of a an identity crisis in england especially But there's some wonderful pictures here of, as is typical, the kind of the history versus the reality. And these pictures are very tacky gift shops (laughs) stocking, you know, Arthurian swords made in China and the like, or kind of tacky tea rooms with with names that are just taking – can to piss somewhat photos of yeah, this a labyrinth carving in a woodland known as Rocky Valley speculation about its origins ranges from early Bronze Age to the 1800s which is not that uncommon I do recall there being a lot of things discovered in the 1800s that were made in the 1800s so they're still old but not that old <laughs> so if history interests you if the kind of mixtures of myth and history interest you then Take a read. It was a fascinating read. There's some great pictures. Yeah, here we go. Here's another one. Visitors with a would-be knight of the Round Table outside King Arthur's great halls. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> plastic swords, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, Excalibur sword, two ninety-nine. Crystal mineral and fossil museum and shoppy in some kind of crappy old building on a street with like stains on the walls. I mean, like unintentional stains, shall we say? But it's a beautiful landscape, actually, even if you don't believe a word of it. It's actually a beautiful part of the country to, uh, to, to uh, visit and soak it up, whether you find it true or not. That was my links for this episode. Uh, I'd always love to, to hear more, hear your feedback. You can find more about me at christianshiller.com. That website is going to get an overhaul soon, but not quite yet. What have I published since the last episode? I So you re- heard me read out the Magic Mind uh, mentions of the past two episodes. So I actually published a daily diary. Well, I didn't publish a daily diary. I put together a diary I made every day, edited it together of that experience. where You can actually see kind of behind the scenes of how I was feeling and how it felt and me using all sorts of different cameras in different locations, piecing it together. If that interests you, I'll also dig into a bit more detail about what was in it. Uh, If you're interested in finding out and those codes are still available, you can find them on the video. That aside, I've been doing a lot of contract work recently, so I've been a little busy, but I'm still progressing with my novel. I'm still progressing with a few videos I'm working on, the canonical Kubernetes tools, the virtualization tools. I think that's it for now. I'm also looking at Serenity OS. I looked at it in my learning live stream this week and hit a few bumps in the road, but already got some feedback on how I can fix those, and I'll be putting together a proper edited video of that soon. I'm about to go travelling, actually. I won't mention where, for reasons that will become apparent when I return, Um, and I will definitely be reporting back on that. So next episode will be very interesting, and my own mystery, not quite up there with Arthurian legend, will be solved as well. But until then, thank you very much for joining me, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter and find all of my writing, games, work and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind the scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.